0: We need to train ourselves to recognize that nonverbal communication that the patient is providing us with.
1: Depending on their functioning level, if they've really struggled with an addiction, not only is it a physical addiction, but there's a lot of psychological pieces that go along with that. I do think there is a lack of public knowledge about the Good Samaritan Law, and I think that is to
2: pain that all of us probably need to get out there right now in Idaho for cash pay naloxone for a two-pack of the nasal is about $140.
3: Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen.
4: Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community health care, the welfare, you and me. The story we can tell, ECHO, all together, well, you know, that swells Echo.
3: Of- On our last episode. We went over some de-escalation strategies with the Director of Security at St. Luke's Hospital System, Abby Abendondolo, and spoke with Skip Clapp, the Director of Court Services in Valley County, who was telling us about some of the complexities facing people who have substance use disorders who become involved in the court system.
2: The treatment providers, when we send someone there, they they tell us if somebody tests positive for drugs or alcohol. They have to tell us
5: if somebody's attending class. They have to tell us about the participation in class.
2: Skip
3: told us about the court's diversion program, which aims to get people who are facing minor offenses who may also be in need of substance use disorder treatment and support into treatment and recovery programs rather than jail or prison.
2: And that requirement can inadvertently cause a wedge between the treatment provider and the client.
3: He also talked to us about peer recovery and mentioned The Rock, a community center in McCall that stands for Recovery Oriented Community that offers peer support recovery services to returning citizens and people in recovery. On today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Brenda Hoyt, nurse practitioner at Raise the Bottom, about harm reduction practices and strategies that we can employ when talking with and treating those who may be in the midst of drug use and dependence. Following that, we've got some special guests on the program today. We'll be speaking with Courtney Boyce and Shelley Hitt from Central District Health, an organization serving Idaho's Ada, Boise, Elmore, and Valley counties, and hearing about some education programs they've got in place to help connect existing prevention, treatment, and recovery resources. All of that is coming up in the next forty-five minutes, so stick around. Idaho,
4: Idaho. sign up for our free sessions there.
3: Today we're going to be hearing a lecture on harm reduction delivered by Brenda Hoyt, nurse practitioner at Raise the Bottom in Boise. The presentation we're going to be hearing was recorded live during an Echo session on May 23rd, 2019. This was a part of Echo Idaho's series on opioid addiction and treatment. Without further ado, let's turn it over to Brenda.
2: So, harm reduction incorporates a spectrum of strategies from safer use to manage use to abstinence to meeting drug users where they're at, addressing conditions of use along with the use itself. Because harm reduction demands, the intervention and policies designed to serve drug users reflects specific individual and community needs. There's no universal definition or a formula for implementing harm reduction. Um, So their primary principles um, central to harm reduction is accepting the illicit or illicit drug use as part of the world of that person and just minimizing the harmful effects rather than ignoring or condemning them. Understanding drug use is a complex, multifaceted phenomenon that encompasses a continuum of behaviors from severe abuse to total abstinence and acknowledging that some ways of using drugs are clearly safer than others. Giving patients a voice or the drug user a voice in the creation of programs and policies designed to serve them. um, and giving them some affirmation, not attempting to minimize or ignore the real and tragic harm and danger associated with licit and illicit drug use. So, and then of course, just recognizing that um, poverty, class, racism, social isolation, past trauma, sex based discrimination, and other social inequalities affect both people's vulnerability to and capacity for effectively dealing with drug related harm.
3: Just to reiterate here what Brenda's already said, because harm reduction refers to a wide variety of practices that can be employed in all different walks of life, reducing harm for people who use drugs is a community-wide effort. Next, Brenda's going to take us through three different strategies for utilizing what she calls opportunities for overdose risk reduction. The first of these is through primary prevention, looking at strategies that can be employed as an individual community member, as a prescriber, and at the level of local, state, and federal government.
2: Opportunities for overdose risk reduction through primary prevention. Primary prevention is targeted education for individuals, educating family and friends on the warning signs of abuse, keeping medications locked up, safe disposal of unused medications, and education about not sharing meds, which seems to be um, more popular now. Um, Doing the medication take-back drives, Um, intervention in family and friends, encouraging treatment and engagement in treatment, and prescribers utilizing PMP, pain contracts, risk assessments prior to prescribing, and then utilizing evidence-based prescribing for opiates.
3: PMP stands for Prescription Monitoring Programs. These are state run programs that collect and distribute data about the prescription and dispensation of federally controlled substances and other potentially addictive prescription drugs. PMPs help to prevent adverse drug related events through opioid overdoses, drug diversion, and substance abuse by decreasing the amount or the frequency of opioid prescribing.
2: And then on a state government level, optimizing the PMP identifying um, and closing those pill mills and increasing access to pain experts. And then on a federal government level, the CDC, epidemiology research, targeted research funding.
3: The second opportunity for overdose risk reduction is through increasing treatment engagement. These strategies can also be employed as an individual community member, as a prescriber, and at the level of local, state, and federal government.
2: Giving individuals access to treatment, which I feel like tends to be one of the biggest barriers for for people seeking treatment because there's just not a lot of treatment available. Utilizing in the community case management at strategic locations, access to multiple treatment modalities, and decreasing the stigma for medication-assisted treatment Um, for prescribers, Diagnose non-medical use, independence, utilizing buprenorphine or Suboxone in office-based settings, and recommending treatment. State and government establishing adequate MIT facilities for treatment. Ensure Medicaid coverage for substance use disorder treatment. I know there's some states that Medicaid covers all of Treatment Oregon is one of them. And then just the lack of facilities that are available for treatment. Is one of the biggest issues, I think. And then on a federal level, mental health parity laws, um, funding for research on innovative treatment models, and campaign to reduce MIT stigma.
3: And finally, the third opportunity for overdose risk reduction is through the utilization of harm reduction strategies, which can also be employed at the levels of individual, community, prescriber, and state and federal government.
2: Opportunities for overdose risk, harm reduction strategies. Um, Providing naloxone and overdose education to individuals, access to naloxone and overdose education for family and friends in the community, having first responders with naloxone available, having do, giving them overdose education, um, the distribution of naloxone. I know back East, they have programs where this the state provides naloxone um, their health department in Baltimore actually goes to high risk areas with boxes of naloxone. And then of course, for prescribers, utilization of the PMP evidence-based opioid prescribing and doing the overdose risk assessments with patients on the state and government level, optimizing the PMP good Samaritan laws, third-party prescribing laws and criminal and civil liability. So right now I know in Idaho, Most pharmacies for cash pay naloxone for a two pack of the nasal is about $140. So it's pretty expensive. And then a lot of the insurances require prior authorization to prescribe or for them to fill it for their insurance to cover it. And a lot of them don't necessarily ask their primary care provider or because of the stigma or concern of what their provider may think. So let's They're say hypothetically,
1: it. I wanted to get naloxone mm-hmm. for myself or others in my circle.
3: This is Echo Idaho's program director speaking, Lashelle Smith.
1: Would I need prior authorization for my insurance? Perhaps, it
2: possibly. Depends.
1: So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, part of it is not being able to bill, you know, put it to your insurance if it's not for you.
3: This is the chair of the College of Pharmacy at Idaho State University, Kathy Oliphant speaking.
1: You know, so if you didn't pick up an opioid prescription, if you want to use it, say, for a friend, you know, or potentially, you know, some will not run it through insurance under you because it's not used under you.
3: So I have a couple of comments on how to to reduce costs. Speaking is Dr. Todd Palmer here. Dr. Palmer is the Addiction Fellowship Director at the Family Medicine Residency of Idaho in Boise. He's also one of Echo Idaho's staple medication for addiction treatment waiver trainers.
0: One thing you can do is instead of paying the $140, um, they have these atomizers the, um, that you can buy them for three bucks. And, um, and you can take a syringe and drop the naloxone and then, and then hook the atomizer onto it and, and spray it in the nose. And it's only $3 for the atomizer. And mm-hmm.
1: How much are the vials? Can they it, the vial anywhere from 40 to 50 bucks for those kits, Two of that, and so you can either get, um, like the Carpujex, you can screw that right into a syringe with the atomizer at the end, or you can get a vial actually, you know, and then you have to draw it up with a needle and then take that off, with the atomizer on, and use it that way.
0: So, the vial to get 2.4 milligram vials still a lot cheaper, it's yes, like. like- was it, like 50 bucks oh, or so? 40 to 50 bucks. 40 for to 50 bucks. But mm-hmm. that's better than 140. Yeah. Um, but it takes some doing because the patient has to, or not
2: per the patient. The, the, Somebody has to draw
0: They up, have to draw yes. it up and they have to, you know, put the atomizer on or they have to inject it. But it's a lot cheaper than using the nasal ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about naloxone is, you know, it's really, it's really good to encourage people to carry it around with them. You know, and, and if they're going to be in, around circles that people are using, Rather than sitting home in a drug cabinet, like carry it around, you're out in the community, you're out at a party, and it saves lives. And I don't think we encourage people to do that enough.
1: Before you move on, does anyone know enough about the Good Idaho's Good Samaritan Law to speak articulately about it?
6: I know a little bit about it, Michelle.
1: Oh, Ian, go.
2: Will you okay. remind us who you are?
6: Yeah. So, my name is Ian Tressoyer and I am a doctor of nursing practice, and I also, um, my day job currently is at Southeastern Public Health, um, the local health department. In Pocatello, and last legislative session, Representative Chu passed a or introduced and the legislator passed a kind of hold harmless bill for people who call first responders, whether that's law enforcement or or like nine one one, and they they send an ambulance. It holds those people harmless for possession of heroin and for para- possession of paraphernalia if they call to. to ask for help to deal with someone who's experiencing an acute crisis, an acute overdose um, that needs immediate medical attention. In many cases, especially the local law enforcement people that I've talked to, they said it has made a huge difference in the number of people getting like just dropped off in the parking lot of an ER and driving off. And instead, people are calling you know, EMTs or um, other first responders to show up to a place where someone's actually experienced an overdose. Yeah, I mean,
0: the, 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 the danger here is that... Um, since naloxone, you know, only works 20, 30 minutes, maybe sometimes a little longer, we don't want these people giving the naloxone, calling paramedics, and then leaving. Right. And, and then the patient goes into, they become comatose again and stop breathing.
1: I did a naloxone training two weeks ago, and there were a couple... Individuals in recovery, one um, had actually had his life saved from naloxone, and then there were actually a couple of current users. They were very negative on, which I thought was interesting, on the Good Samaritan laws that they didn't believe that law enforcement were actually enforcing it, and why would they call 911 when they had drugs on them? So I do think there is a lack of public knowledge about the Good Samaritan law. I think that is something that all of us probably need to get out there. There was a lady in the audience her, whose son um, had actually passed at a party that actually there was naloxone there and no one would give it to him because they didn't want to call 911. So there is still some of that stigma yeah. and that, yeah, it may be there, but I don't believe that that is truly being enforced. But it's really unfortunate that that's
0: the thought out there Sure, well, I mean, just the fact that the show brings up the question who knows a lot about the Good Samaritan Law? And we have all these people, and no one, you know, no one, you know, we all, if if not all of us know it, then how do we get the information out to the public or the people that could be affected? I mean, that's exactly, Uh, I mean, I think, you know, certainly open treatment centers that can be used to educate anybody that walks through the door. Uh, we can do a better job with the residency on that. Um, I think part of these populations is really getting out there with this success.
1: Yeah. When you write that opioid prescription, right, talk about naloxone and maybe
2: add good Samaritan yeah. law. I know that we hand out one nasal Narcan, so Race the Bottom by is nasal Narcan, and we give it out to all of our new patients when they first come in, and we educate them on use, and we have patients that have come back and, months later and said, well, I had to use this on somebody. Can I get another one? Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have insurance. We try to give them at least one more. And if they have insurance and they want a prescription for it, we're providing those prescriptions, um, yeah. just trying to get it out there. Yeah. I have one in my car. I typically have one on my purse. I don't right now. Um, all of the offices, all of our counselors, our medical staff all wow. have one available just in, yeah. in front office staff, just in case somebody were to come in and there's concern about.
0: And you're talking about? one me has two
2: doses no so we just give them the one dose wow. and then just tell them like explain to them this has or only works for 20 30 minutes so the is
0: sometimes you need the two doses exactly right. and then with fentanyl um you can use more than two <laughs> yeah doses. you can right. use them to four
1: but
2: since we're i mean raise the bottom at least we're getting it out yeah, there that's as great. at that's least really a dose yeah. um Currently, some of the harm reduction programs and strategies that are out there, so needle exchange programs, medication-assisted treatments, so Suboxone, Methadone, Vivitrol, uh, and then cooperation with law enforcement. So Boise has the lead pro- pilot program right now, so law enforcement identifies some of those patients and, and clients when they arrest them or pull them over rather than uh, immediately charging them with drug-related offenses. They meet the criteria for the program, they get them set up with Recovery for Life, and then bring them over to Raise the Bottom, and we try and get them started in treatment as quickly as possible. And then outreach programs for high-risk populations. Yeah. And like great. I said, like Baltimore, they have their community health department goes out to those high-risk um, yeah. population areas where they've noted those significant number of overdose deaths and provide naloxone, nasal Narcan, to, to people in Literally at bus stops, they'll ride education and handle those yeah. out. So this is a a, a a topic that comes up a lot, and that's
0: there are some positions that will um, they will mandate counseling. Like you can't get MAT unless you're you're um, getting counseling and you're documenting um, um, attendance to uh, Narcotics Anonymous. So I would say most of the folks now. Are, uh, are not man- are not doing that anymore there 's actually not good evidence believe it or not that counseling adds to MAT. do I encourage counseling absolutely I, I-, I strongly encourage counseling um, it doesn 't necessarily have to be a- a- addiction counseling I mean a lot of the counseling they do it probably raise the bottom it 's not re- it 's around life issues mm-hmm. um, that of course relates to their their use but um, we 've changed this at the residency recently, and a lot of other people are changing it saying that that is not a deal breaker. I mean, if someone um, will not get counseling, they refuse to do it, or they can't do it, you don't deprive them of MAT. And that, that's a key point in it. It really relates to harm reduction. So
2: mm-hmm. we do require an hour
0: of um, contact that, with a counselor. But that's a, fed, isn't that federally um, mandated? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah, no. A lot of that is we aren't seeing every patient, a provider isn't seeing a, a patient every month. Yeah. Um, they're coming in. So that's, that's their justification to continue, especially methadone, um, to continue receiving their methadone without having to see a provider every month. And a lot of them are working on budgeting life skills. It's not necessarily directly related to their addiction or even mental health. Some of it is just figuring out how to cope with day-to-day life.
3: That again was a didactic presentation by Brenda Hoyt titled Harm Reduction. That lecture was recorded live during an ECHO session that took place on May 23rd, 2019 as a part of ECHO Idaho's Opioid Addiction and Treatment Series. If you'd like to watch the Zoom recording of that presentation, that video is currently available on the ECHO Idaho YouTube channel, which you can access through our website. The PowerPoint slide deck that accompanied that presentation is also available on our website www.uidaho.edu slash echo. I'm going to transition now to a more recent conversation I had with two members of Idaho's Central District Health, an organization serving Idaho's Ada, Boise, Elmore, and Valley counties. Courtney Boyce is the Health Education Specialist Senior and heads up DOPP, or DOP, the Drug Overdose Prevention Program. Shelly Hitt is the program coordinator for VCOR, the Valley County Opioid Response Project, which, full disclosure, is the primary funding source for this podcast. Courtney and Shelly joined me for a special interview to talk a little bit about some of the education initiatives and projects that CDH has going on right now. So welcome to the program, Courtney and Shelly. So for starters, I'm wondering if I could just ask both of you to introduce yourselves to our audience. Tell us who you are and what you do.
7: So, my name is Courtney Boyce, and I'm the Drug Overdose Prevention Program Coordinator at Central District Health. And uh, my formal title is Health Education Specialist Senior.
5: I'm Shelly Hitt. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm the project coordinator for the Valley County Opioid Response Project.
3: All right, thank you. Welcome. So, Courtney, I'd like to start off with you. Uh, Can you just provide a brief overview of the scope and some of the aims of the Drug Overdose Prevention Program?
7: Sure. Uh, So for the Drug Overdose Prevention Program, we go by DOP. Our main mission is to help decrease fatal and non-fatal drug overdoses in our region. So Ada, Boise Valley, and Elmore County. Um, And really what we're doing right now is working to improve community capacity to address substance use and use through prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery support services. And one of the evidence-based strategies that we employ is to provide technical assistance, education, training, and material development. And we've been targeting law enforcement, first responders, and crisis systems in Valley County. And that can include social media graphics or other social media promotion for drug take-back events and other community-based education opportunities. And something that we did over the last couple of months is a Valley County-specific overdose prevention and response training where participants learn about Overdose risk factor education, alternative pain management, safe storage and disposal. And mainly they learn how to recognize and respond to an overdose, including the administration of two forms of naloxone, and then learn where to access those tools and resources.
3: Just so our listeners are aware, Echo Idaho has a video demonstration of how to use and administer Narcan available on our website. That information is also linked in our show notes.
7: And then we provide um, additional individual and organizational skill development by providing them certificates of attendance for participating in that training. And after they attend, then we work with our local and state partners to distribute overdose rescue kits.
3: And just for the folks who may not be familiar with naloxone, can you just briefly talk about what that is and how it's administered?
7: So naloxone is the only medication that can help reverse an overdose, um, an opioid overdose specifically. It can be administered in two different ways. There's the intramuscular naloxone, which is administered by syringe. And then there's also the intranasal naloxone, otherwise known as the Narcan nasal spray. And that um, is similar to any other type of nasal medication like Afrin, where it's administered through um, either nostril and then it's absorbed through the nasal membranes. And it takes anywhere from two to five minutes, depending on the form of naloxone that a person has to get a response. But It can prevent a fatal overdose if a person is experiencing an overdose by reversing that process for 30 to 60 minutes, depending on their tolerance, to give them enough time to access emergency medical services and be revived from an overdose.
3: So my next question is for Shelly. So V Corp is something that people who have maybe tuned into our podcast before might have heard me mention in our credits as one of the organizations that makes this podcast possible, Um, but they might not know anything else about it. So can you tell us what is V Corp?
5: Sure. Um, We received a, a million dollar grant for over a three year period that's funding the Valley County Opioid Response Project. And the focus of the grant is on prevention, treatment and recovery from opioid use disorder in specifically in Valley County and the surrounding communities.
3: And why specifically in Valley County? I mean, what, if anything is unique about the opioid situation there as opposed to say anywhere else in Idaho?
5: So when we wrote the grant, the, the statistics that we used was Valley County had 11 overdose deaths from 2014 to 2018. With a five-year population of 52,005, this puts the mortality rate for drug overdose deaths at 21.2 percent, according to IDHW. It's a higher risk than Idaho's drug overdose mortality rate of 20.4 per 100,000 people in the population. So their, their drug overdose rate in Valley County is higher than our normal population.
7: Between Ada, Boise Valley, and Elmore County, uh, Valley County has the highest drug overdose mortality rate. Um, And HRSA indicated in 2014 that 88.08% of people that needed to have addiction treatment weren't able to receive it. So that just highlights some of the systematic issues that Valley County residents experience not being able to access services or care.
3: So, Shelly, who are some of the organizations involved in V Corp?
5: So... We have five sub-grantees that are funded through the grant. We have Boise State University, or The Rock, it's a recovery-oriented community. It's a hub that we actually established in Valley County, meaning there's an office there, and we have the Youth Advocacy Coalition that handles the prevention, which is another subgrantee. They're co-located in that office. And then we have EPIC, which is through um, Dr. Holbert, And then um, our last one is Echo, which is helping with this podcast.
3: And we're glad to be a part of it. You mentioned a minute ago the mortality rate of Valley County being higher um, than in other Idaho counties. It might be worth mentioning here that Valley County and most of Idaho is defined as rural. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how the rural environment of Valley County might be impacting the trends in opioid use that we're seeing?
5: And actually, Valley County is considered frontier.
3: Oh, frontier! Right. Okay. So, uh, so what's the difference between rural and frontier?
7: That's my understanding. It's geographic location and um, population density.
5: Yeah, and it's defined as having a population density of fewer than six people per square mile is frontier. Yeah, so it's it's less less populated.
7: So, the question kind of was like, how the rural environment of Valley County impact opioid trends. And what we're seeing is that the rate of drug overdose deaths in rural areas of Idaho have surpassed urban areas um, based on their population size. And that's a huge um, public health concern for us and something specifically that we're addressing through the Drug Overdose Prevention Program and through VCOR. And there's a lot of differences as to why that can happen. That could be socioeconomic factors, health behaviors, physical conditions of the environment. So infrastructure, recreation, larger geographic distances, limited transportation, kind of some of those access to services issues. And there's also differences in social conditions because people's networks, their social networks and connections, they can be a protective factor, but they can also amplify risk through a lack of knowledge about treatment or risky behaviors. And then there's real and perceived um, issues around being anonymous around use and accessing services to address an opioid use disorder, for example, and then the stigmatization of people who use substances in addition to accessing treatment for that. Um, And then there's different policy conditions, including limited coverage and availability of harm reduction and drug treatment services, including intensive outpatient substance use services. Um, For example, in Valley County, there isn't um, any BPA-funded intensive outpatient substance use services, so that can really limit um, options of care based on funding source. And then individual service provider practices, which can limit the scope of care.
3: So your mention of lack of services in Valley County has me wondering, what are some resources that are available to folks in Valley County? Shelly, you mentioned a minute ago uh, the ROC, and that's actually something that Skip Clapp mentioned in our last episode. Can I get you to say a little bit more about the ROC?
5: Sure. So um, the ROC, which stands for um, Recovery Oriented Community, is the newest recovery center that we have in Valley County. Again, it's um, a subsidiary of of Peer Wellness, Um, and they have peer-led groups And recovery coaching as part of their services there in Valley County, and so it's it's a new service in Valley County that we didn't have before. Um, They also um, have pro recovery social activities, and they've also partnered with the Phoenix Gym to they're going to to host sober activities and fitness activities. And I think some of that's been on hold because of of COVID, but I think that's it's going to once the precautions get lightened up, we can hopefully move forward with that. The ROC has been involved in also identifying some of the gaps in services that we have in Valley County as part of the VCOR consortium, and we're all working together to try to identify those and develop partnerships through the consortium to fill those service gaps for substance use disorder treatment and prevention services in the county.
7: Um, I think the Rock has been really instrumental because, as Shirley mentioned, they are bridging that gap. But they're boots on the ground. So while they're providing virtual services, they also have staff that is there to meet with people to be able to discuss safety planning, to be able to help connect them to evidence-based treatment and resources in their community, um, and to have a stable point of contact. Um, and those those are services that were never offered in that community before. And and having peer-led services is really Um, beneficial for people because they can use their lived experience to support others. Um, Other types of resources that we refer folks to, um, there's the Change Clinic that is in Donnelly that provides medication-assisted treatment in addition to other treatment services. And then there's St. Luke's that's located in McCall, but they do emergency primary and behavioral health services. And then Cascade Medical Center, obviously in Cascade, and they also do emergency primary and behavioral health services. And then um, we also refer folks a lot to Central Idaho Counseling, which has treatment um, options located in Cascade and McCall. Um, And then we refer folks to look at the West Central um, Mountains Youth Advocacy Coalition website. Um, That's just westcentralmountainsyouth.org because they have a whole list of local resources that is run and facilitated by a local in Valley County. And then through the Drug Overdose Prevention Program, we list... Um, Valley County specific resources, regional resources that impact all four counties, um, in addition to the other counties that we serve. Um, and we use a, an interactive mobile map option. So people that have um, the ability of accessing Google Maps can use these maps to filter out based on their location services that they're looking for. So if they're located in Cascade and they want to know where their nearest medication assisted treatment location is, then they can get directions directly to the change clinic in Donnelly, for example. Um, And then we have a comprehensive resource spreadsheet for those that are not um, interactively inclined to use those mobile maps that provide a whole bunch of information um, that would be really difficult to synthesize into an interactive map. And that's on housing, um, employment, vocational assistance, clothing, food vouchers, Uh, treat outpatient services, treatment options, recovery support services, things like that. So any way that we can help address a person's social determinants of health when they're, um, they themselves might be managing a substance use disorder or substance use or family members or friends.
3: Those sound like great resources to have. Um, something, something I kind of wanted to ask you about is how, and you mentioned it earlier about, um, stigmatization of uh, a substance use disorder and how that can really affect people's um, willingness even to seek treatment you know, in a lot of cases, especially in rural areas where like everybody seems to know everybody else, um, how that can really play play into that. I, I'm curious if, um, if you could talk a little bit about some of the educational strategies that might be employed to change the narratives that people might have about substance use and and the assumptions maybe that they have?
7: So something that the Drug Overdose Prevention Program does is at the end of every um, overdose prevention and response training, we talk about harm reduction and we talk about person-first language. Um, We don't know when an overdose is going to occur and we are trying to educate and inform the public on how they can be prepared in the case of an overdose. But having the information and knowledge about person-first language is something that they can start to practice immediately um, after the training. And that really helps reframe how people view themselves, how they access treatment services, how they identify a diagnosis. And what it does is it puts the person before the diagnosis. So um, an example, person-first language is instead of saying an addict, saying that a person has a substance use disorder, saying that a person is under supervision, rather than saying that they're on probation and parole. So those are some of the things that we do that try to combat uh, stigma of not just substance use itself, substance use disorders, um, and some of the larger issues that can come into play with folks that have behavioral health issues. But it's trying to um, provide an empathetic olive branch to folks so that they can um, access services and feel safe and comfortable to do so. Another other educational things that um, I think are important for practitioners is to um, reassure local folks in particular what their HIPAA privacy practices are, maintaining that their privacy is important uh, to everybody that works in the facility and not just that individual provider, and letting them know um, what options are available for them for forms of treatment that might be um, better suited to meet their needs. So maybe that's an appointment once every three months, maybe that's telehealth if they have that option, things like that. Um, Other things related to stigma is accessing treatment services is an evidence-based strategy of being able to reduce the harms associated with substance use and trying to um, provide that information wide and and encouraging community members if they know somebody uh, that has a substance use issue to access that and to start those conversations. And then something that we do a lot for the Drug Overdose Prevention Program is we really encourage people to carry naloxone and to know that it's not scary to carry naloxone. That it's a prescription medication, yes, but it's the only medication that can prevent an overdose, a fatal overdose. And it's really important for folks, specifically in Valley County, to have naloxone on hand and have widespread community availability because their response times, especially in the case of a more uh, severe overdose event or the related harms from an overdose, might be a little bit longer depending on where they're at geographically in Valley County. Um, So those are some of the things that we do um, that try to encourage people to be a little bit more mindful of their interactions, to be more mindful of those that have those needs and ways that we can support the community and knowing how stigma can be really damaging to folks.
5: Shelly, what do you have to say? I really think that's part of, of the role of the Valley County Opioid Response Project. It's, it, the, we have a cross-section of agencies that participate, and we meet monthly. And we also have um, a couple of members that have joined that also have life experiences. And I think it's the role of the consortium as we work through some of the needs in the, in the county and the services that we're implementing that the stigma piece is always a part of that um it's part of I think what we do we, there's some other things that um, for some community events that we plan to to help educate the community um, increase the awareness of the services through the grant of what's offered again to try to reduce that that stigma.
3: Can you mention maybe a few ways that uh, community members uh, might be able to get involved in some of these projects?
5: Well, I mean, there's a couple of ways um as the project director they can always um contact myself if they want interested in participating in the consortium. The Rock has an actual website and Western Central Mountains Youth Advocacy Coalition. They also have a have a website as well.
3: Just so our listeners know Shelly Hitt's email address and contact phone number, as well as the website information for The Rock and the Western Central Mountains Youth Advocacy Coalition, are listed in our show notes on our website.
7: I would say another way that community members can get involved is to educate and inform themselves about resources available in the community to know the impact that behavioral health has had in uh, their region and how to start those conversations with people. That have behavioral health needs in general, and to participate in an overdose prevention and response training because it's um, about an hour long. We do them virtually. Um, I'll do them by appointment, but we also do them for organizations that are interested in having naloxone on site um, to really know how they can respond to an overdose in the case of an emergency and how to be able to better support the residents in their community and to um, know what tools are available for them in the case of an overdose, uh, not just um, the overdose itself, but also overdose prevention resources um, like uh, drug lock boxes, Deterra drug deactivation pouches, which is super important for Valley County since a lot of residents are on septic systems and need to dispose of their medications safely, things like that. So I think those are some of the strategies that people can start employing today. And then um, any way that they can start learning about. Um, person first language and employing that in their day-to-day language is going to be really important as well to help reduce stigma and to be better to understand substance use as it pertains to their community and um, better equip themselves to address um, substance use in that capacity.
5: I think another good resource too is the um, the SAMHSA website um, for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They have a lot of good information uh, and resources as well. A lot of our Valley County
7: folks that um, are interested or might be listening to this podcast that don't reside or work in Valley County, there's um, other resources available through their public health districts, through their drug overdose prevention programs or similar programs like VCOR. And then um, Google also has a Recover Together map, which is very similar to what we've um, created as well. But obviously, we would refer SAMHSA to.
3: Cool. Well, th- yeah, thank you both for sharing all that. Um, I do want to just kind of leave some space if there's anything else that um, y'all feel like you really want to be sharing with people who may be hearing this, whether they be people who are in recovery or if there are people who are working in the healthcare workforce.
7: I would encourage practitioners to explore um, implementing medication assisted therapy within their clinics, regardless of their specialty of practice, um, because it's a needed service, especially in Valley County. I would encourage them to um, look at some of their policies and procedures around addressing substance use, to have it be a little bit more comprehensive if possible, and up to date with some of the best practices for um, CDC and SAMHSA uh, to uh, reach out to Shelley and I between our mutual programs and to see what we can do to support them. And um, for me in my capacity, I have the ability of being able to work with some of those organizations on improving their policies and procedures around naloxone, substance use, things like that. Um, And then really working to um, implement person-first language modalities in all of their clinic services and um, continuously encouraging people to access naloxone, to carry naloxone. Um, and to try to take down some of those personal barriers that people have when accessing services by being an inclusive organization and supporting folks with behavioral health needs. That can, those steps, even though it seems very broad, are really instrumental in changing some of the culture in Valley County. That is um, creating a safe space for people with substance use issues to come forward and their family members and friends as so they can also get the support that they need as well.
5: You know, I just, I think Courtney and I, our programs overlap, but our roles are, are a little different. She's really, uh, her role really is more around the training piece. Mine's more around community development. Even You know, we received the grant to increase capacity in the prevention and treatment services in, in the county. But, you know, the, the goal of the consortium really is to sustain a collaborative relationship and partners to, to increase um you know services in the in the county whether it be prevention treatment recovery um you know and it's an ongoing process and we're always looking for folks that want to be involved to help us with that because it takes the community to do that and we have a really good core group of folks but we're always looking for other partners or community members that have lived life experiences to be part of the consortium because it takes all different perspectives to develop a good really good working system
3: That again was an interview with V-Corp Program Coordinator Shelly Hitt and DOP Program Coordinator Courtney Boyce from Central District Health. Information about some of the resources Courtney and Shelly mentioned during that interview, including the Change Clinic, The Rock, the Youth Advocacy Coalition, and Central District Health, can be found in our podcast show notes on our podcast webpage, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live ECHO sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu ECHO, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by V Corp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today, but join us next time when we'll be hearing a lecture on motivational interviewing delivered by Deb Thomas, certified alcohol and drug counselor, licensed professional counselor, and CEO of the Walker Center in Gooding. We'll also be speaking with Barbara Norton from the Change Clinic in Donnelly, Idaho. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CBI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Abby Abendondolo, Amy Jepsen, Kathy Oliphant, and Brenda Hoyt, respectively. Big thanks also to the other contributing voices on today's episode, Lachelle Smith, Todd Palmer, Ian Sawyer, Shelley Hitt, and Courtney Boyce. And a big thanks to all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Lachelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters-Jewel. And our program coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen.